If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Whoever is on the board, Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dinah Weeks and Dave Vodard. You know the global pandemic is officially over when everyone is talking strike. Welcome back. Here's Scott Thompson. I don't know what to talk about here. I got the... We got the freedom thing on the one side, and they're beeping their horns, and on the other side, they're screaming, strike, strike, strike. Ah! Where do we go from here? Oh, my goodness. Yes, the pandemic is officially over. The pandemic is officially gone. I don't care what any medical doctor says. As soon as uh, we get back to where we were before the uh, COVID-19 global pandemic, COVID-19. It's 2022. Uh, But we're right back in the exact same place that we were uh, when we were all told to get inside and stay there for a while. So what an absolutely mind-boggling day. And as a man who turned 60 years of age uh, this year, uh, so now I'm getting really like focused and, 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 and retrospective and such. And I had to deal with this when I was a teenager. I've told you the story. I bored you to tears with it. Uh, my kids went through it. Same thing. Bored you to tears with a whole, and you've got your own. And here we go again. Here we go again. Here we go again. And, um, you know, everyone wants a raise. Everyone deserves a raise. Everybody's angry. Everybody needs some help. Everybody needs just a hand up. Everyone, everyone, everyone. (sighs) But for some, when they're asking, it affects everyone else. And that's why we are where we are today. It's a uh, bizarre scenario. By the way, it's Hamilton today. Everyone's here. Jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Feel free. You can send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone line's always open. You can text us, too, at 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. All right, the editorial over. Where are we now? Uh, And this is just up. Can you smell that? This is so new, it's it's right out of the oven. And that is the mediation is over between the union and the province it's over it's done uh no more so you know what that means yeah exactly where we were pre-covid 19 also opsu said uh there's some 8,000 ed workers education workers that's education assistants early childhood educators that are also going to support uh their qp members so teachers next i don't know uh, but again, here we go again. It's, uh, it's the 1980s all over again. Hence the song we played, Gary U.S. Bonds, reminding me of the 80s with skyrocketing inflation, skyrocketing interest rates, recession, and then everyone looking for a gig. So, uh, hopefully we won't end up back there, but I'm going to play you some clips. This, uh, again, Stephen Lecce, education minister, uh, was just speaking before we got on the air and uh, and gave a news conference. This is a series of clips. I could set them up for you, but I think <laughs> while I were talking, uh, we're just going to run them. But these are about four clips that uh, we put together out of uh, that news conference. Listen. After demanding a nearly 50% increase in compensation, QP threatened to strike. 
Since then, we've been at the table, literally right up to the last minute today. We've made good faith efforts to reach a fair deal. But all along, QP refused to take strikes and disruption off the table. I've directed school boards to do everything possible to keep as many schools open for as many students as possible. I've also directed the teachers and staff need to be at work tomorrow, providing live learning. As noted, if QP moves forward with their strike, we will do everything we can to reduce this unacceptable disruption on children. We're going to use every tool in the legislation to keep schools open and to get staff to show up to help our kids. They need to be in school and we will use every tool available to send a clear, unambiguous message. Schools should be open. We've been very clear. Our preference is to get a voluntary deal and we're going to continue to work in good faith with our education unions as I did three years ago when we got a deal with every single teacher union in the province of Ontario. I seek to do that again. A deal that is good for workers, but a deal that keeps kids in the classroom. Thank you all. And we will use every tool we have to end their disruption. I know QP's strike action will be hard on you. And I'm sorry QP is causing you with this anxiety. We believe you deserve better. And our government is doing everything humanly possible to reduce disruption. All right, there you have it. Uh, so things are, uh, discussions have broken down. Uh, mediation, even even when the two were going back and forth, the two sides, the mediator was there running back and forth trying to keep it all together. But mediation officially over between the two, uh, the union and the province. I don't know what happens next. Uh, I guess uh, tomorrow uh, is what happens. Uh, and, and, and you're left to, to make plans for, for the kids. Here's, uh, and, and even the feds have gotten in on this, which I, fee- I find incredibly ironic and hypocritical simply because as we're discussing the human rights violations, uh, that are apparently happening because someone is losing the right to strike through the notwithstanding clause, the Emergency Act inquiry is going on over human rights in and around mandatory vaccination. So it's wrong to use the North notwithstanding clause, but it's okay to use the Emergencies Act. It's okay to use the Emergencies Act, but not the notwithstanding clause. Boy, I think there's a lot of overreach going on from all sides of this. Be nice if everybody came to the center and just had a group hug. This week, the Purse Project Network kicked off its 2022 campaign. The organization is collecting new and gently used purses filled with personal care items for women in need until November 30th. To talk more about all of this, uh, Gail Amatos and Jill McKellar with us, directors of the Purse Project, and here now. Gail and Jill, thanks for your time. Hope you're well. We are. Thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. So I'll just throw these out there, and whoever wants to jump in, you, you, you two feel free. So tell us about the Purse Project Network, what this is all about. It'll give us a bit of backstory here. Okay. Um, the backstory is that this started in 2016 with a couple of other women who wanted to give back to their neighborhood and to their community. And then in 2018, Jill and I got involved as uh, friends who wanted to also do something in our community. And in 2020, we had the opportunity to take over the leadership of the organization when the other two uh, stepped down from it. Uh, So the purpose of it is to bless women who are in need with uh, the gift of a purse 
to encourage them with a card of blessing that's in every purse and to help meet their needs through the donations that are in the purses. This is a great idea. Uh, is this something you thought of locally or is this something you've seen going on nationwide? Where'd you get the idea? So our friends, Mandy and Sarah, who started it in uh, the Niagara region, originally heard about it in the Toronto area. Uh, but we really uh, got involved through them uh, doing it in the Niagara area. And uh, Gayla and I are based in Halton and Hamilton, and we do have a chapter in the Niagara area. And we have uh, some new chapters starting up this year further north in uh, Cochrane and Iroquois Falls, which we're very excited about. But they're uh, they're all part of a purse project network, so to speak. You're all you all uh, exchange information, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Jill and I are the co-directors of this, and so we sort of head it all up and try to promote it and get other chapters started. We have lots of uh, women working as ambassadors. Uh, we have somebody in London. We had somebody in Bancroft and different communities as they hear about it. We definitely set them up to start it in their own community. Um, so right now, as Jill said, our focus is primarily in the Hamilton, Halton, Niagara regions, but we would sure love to see it grow and have other chapters um, across Canada. So, okay. so so what are you trying to do between now and November 30th? If somebody wants to get involved, what do we do? How, do, how does this work? Okay, they go to our Facebook page, the Purse Project Network, or our website, uh, which is also the Purse Project Network, and uh, they have a look at the list of 10 essential items that we want uh, them to put in the purses. They look through their closet for a gently used purse that is in fabulous condition, or if they like, they go out and buy a purse. They fill it with the 10 essential items, and then on the website or on the Facebook page, they will see the purse drop-off locations. These are uh, businesses, um, various places that have a huge drop-off box in the entranceway, and that's where they can drop off their filled purse. And the purses are filled all exactly the same with a list of things. Is that accurate? We, we do ask for these 10 essential items because right. these are the key things that the organizations have requested. But people often will top up the purses with extra mm. goodies. And so we'll take anything that comes in the purses pretty much as long as it's new and, you, and usable for the women. Now talk about the cards that go along with this. Okay, so these are handmade, handwritten cards with a message of encouragement in every card. It's um, a personal touch uh, for the women who receive the purses, just something uh, that says, we're thinking about you, we want to encourage you, we really want to bless you. And that's something that we do all through the year because, you know, we're aiming for over 2,000 purses this year. So to get those cards made and written and ready, we have an amazing team of volunteers who help us make and write the cards throughout the year. Uh, obviously, on your website, a list of places where you can drop these off. Now, once all of these are collected, you take them out to various agencies. How do they get into the hands of those that need them? Yeah, we have um, a list uh, of uh, about 16 organizations in the Hamilton-Halton region, nine specific in Hamilton, 
and that we different organizations that work with women in various states of need. And so we've contacted these organizations ahead of time. We've asked them how many purses they would like to receive. And then when we've collected them up, we bundle them up, we contact them and we either deliver them or have them pick them up. And then they're the ones who actually give them to the women that they work with. And this drive is on until November 30th. That is correct. Yes. And yes. for more information, just go to the purseprojectnetwork.com and all the information everyone needs to know is there. It is. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. A great idea. And I can really see this expanding and people jumping on board and uh, taking it into other areas as well. Gela Matos with us and Jill McKellar, directors of the Purse Project Network. You can help the purseprojectnetwork.com. Uh, thanks so much for your time. Good luck with this. Thanks so much. We appreciate the opportunity to be on the air. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We talked about, of course, coming out of a global pandemic, retail, the hospitality industry, and how they are coping. And now labor shortages, a big issue as we head into uh, the holiday season. To talk more about all of this, Anish Shravastava is with us, owner of Unique Restaurant Group. That includes the Powerhouse, District Kitchen and Bar, the King George, South Coat 53, the Dickens, and B-Side Social. He is with us now. Anish, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing great, Scott. How are you? Good. So how is biz? Because we all remember, uh, you know, the hell you guys went through during uh, the pandemic and such, and then things started to open up. Uh, are you still seeing that that strong, uh, uh, strong customer base, or are things starting to lighten up a bit? Um, I would say overall, it's still been, it's still uh, pretty strong. Um, you know, the summer was was exceptional. I think for our industry, from just people wanting to get out and you know, uh, make up for lost time for what they missed out in the last couple of years. And then I think we saw a bit of a softening as the summer ended and kids went back to school and things like that. Um, but, you know, I think as an industry, we're very hopeful and, and seeing signs that the holiday season will be uh, pretty strong with the return of holiday parties and gatherings and, and things of that nature. What about staffing? Because we've heard that staffing, uh, you know, and just everybody's hiring, it seems, no matter what the industry is, you know, is. What's it been like for hospitality? What's it like been like for you to retain workers? Uh, it's It's been quite challenging. I, I, again, it's not a, a secret, I think, that the amount of people who, who left the workforce and, and, uh, and that over the pandemic is quite significant, as you mentioned, through all industries. I think what uh, has hurt our industry probably a little bit more is because of all the lockdowns and restrictions that we faced over over the last two years. Um, you had a lot of people who just had to leave the industry. They had to, you know, find other ways to, to to make ends meet and just, you know, for that reason, left the industry altogether. And so I think that's why we were hit a bit harder with, with shortages. And then, of course, you know, when you when we opened up and then d- demand came back, it just was a kind of perfect storm for, for the industry. And what about uh, getting new people to come in? How difficult is it to get the next generation of servers in that, that didn't take off for other pastures, greener pastures at the time? Yeah, I don't, I mean, the ser- the serving side of it, um, at least we found, I've heard different stories from different people, we haven't found that to be the challenge as much because, as you know, you know, my, my, my daughter's done it for a couple of years and going to yeah. college and stuff like that. So it's one of those industry especially in in you know we're not fine dining we're kind of casual pub type settings you mm-hmm. do get um uh, people who are students or looking for second jobs or things of that nature the issue is really we're been in the back of the house uh, trying to find kitchen staff and people to cook um and part of the challenge there is 
Um, even, you know, we got culinary schools and things like that that are trying to recruit and train people, but that takes time. You don't just, you know, hire somebody and throw them on a kitchen, in a busy kitchen a week after they've, uh, uh, you know, for the first time. So there, I think there's a training component. I think there's drawing people into the industry. The, I think uh, cooking staff or being a cook or a chef um, hasn't been um, the most favorably, favorably looked upon kind of career path in the past, and we've got to change that. We've got to make people want to come into this industry and show them the benefits of doing so. Um, we've heard uh, some restaurants or, or anecdotally situations where now um, restaurants or hospitality starting to offer benefits or more benefits and probably in the back half of the operation as you're talking about as opposed to servers and such to try to retain and hang on. Is it possible to do that in a industry where the profit margins are, are quite slim as it is? Is it can you can you offer other incentives? I mean, you, at the end of the day, and, uh, and I think everybody knows this, that whatever costs come into a business will end up being put back on the consumer. And that's why if you've yeah. been to a restaurant recently, you just see um, menu prices, you know, versus even a year ago, um, yeah. are significantly higher. You know, it's, it's tough going to a restaurant and finding a burger under $20, $21. It used to be 15 16 bucks right before the pandemic. You know what, Anish? It's so funny that you say that because that's the first thing I noticed was, yep. "Hey, I thought this was under twenty bucks, and now it's over." But yeah, there's there's a perfect example, or that twenty dollar bottle of wine that you know has yep. creeped over that price or so. It's funny that you picked that out, but yeah, you you certainly do notice it. You hundred percent notice it, and 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 you got to remember. And again, this, this is not a a, a criticism. Uh, it's not a, not a political discussion we're having, but yeah. you know the other thing that we've been uh, this industry has been hit with, aside from all the food inflation and stuff that you hear about, is you got to remember that servers minimum wage was bumped from twelve something up to fifteen uh, fifty. Um, yeah. I mean, we 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 had almost a thirty percent increase in our in our base labor cost in less than a year in the middle of all this, right? Mm-hmm. So. Um, the, the short answer to your question is, you know, you, you've got to uh, balance the whether it's increasing pay and benefits versus uh, scaring away consumers and guests completely. Right. And at the end of the day, eating out is, is, a, is a luxury. It's a privilege. It's uh, something nice to do. It's not a, a necessity. Um, and, and finding that balance, I think, is where we're, as an industry right now, we're having a lot of trouble doing because we've been hit with so many you know, cost uh, pressures uh, across the whole P&L um, this year. You know, everything from oil and gas that has driven up food costs, like labor costs, labor shortages, all that kind of stuff. Um, and it's, um, you know, you can't pass it all to the consumer uh, and, and that quickly. And, and, you know, food is the biggest example. I mean, everybody's feeling that once they, you know, go to any grocery store. So obviously that you're, you're going to feel that as well. What about uh, tips? Because there's been some chatter about tips. People have seen tips go up a little bit or when they're handed the, the little doodad, you know, to put their credit card on. I forget what you call it. But that they, you know, it's a set number. How do you find that balance, too, where, um, you know, I remember the day when a tip was 10%. Everybody's thinking, well, the prices are going up. Why does the rate of tipping going up? What are your thoughts on all of that? I mean, I'm, I think I'm still a bit old school when it comes to tipping, which is you mm-hmm. tip for service. You tip for the experience that you've had. Um, the, the, you know, nobody should expect a tip. Tip shouldn't be automatic and all that, all, all that sort of thing, right? And so I, I think from our perspective, you know, we don't obviously, I, I can't even tell you what's on our machines, but we haven't changed it in so long. It probably still does say, you know, 15, 18, 20 or something like that. 
But um, at the end no, of I the guess day, my I point was Onish was that all of a sudden the option for like thirty percent was on it. Like you could see them going up. I mean, I think you know most the average prior yeah. to the pandemic was up to twenty anyway. But now people yeah. are starting to see it creep up. I guess. Yeah, look, I, I I think that tipping should be optional. I think that people should tip what they're comfortable. I mean, the whole purpose again of a tip was always to um, uh, reward for good service. Over the years, the narrative has changed to, well, we're subsidizing wages, um, which is unfortunate because that was never, that's not why you tip. That's not why we have tips, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I think we got to leave it up to each individual. There's, there's, I know in Burlington, uh, I think for the first time I saw a new restaurant open up where there's no tipping and they've built it all into their price. Um, Mm. Which is fine because, again, uh, you know my point earlier. But at the end of the day, uh, whatever the costs are, are going to be paid by the consumer. And so, you know, you've, they do have. They have, never mind the twenty dollars burger. I think they have a twenty seven dollars burger because it includes <laughs> tax and tip, right? But it's it's the same thing, just sliced a different way. But now you're in a situation where you're you tipping is no longer become optional in that scenario. Um, but there's a big, you know, and you see it a lot on social media. There's just this big debate right now about tipping and uh, living wages and minimum wages and how that all yeah. works together. And I yeah. think it's just unfortunate, you know, the wage is the wage and the tip should be for, for good service. And, you know, I think a lot of us forget that uh, most of the people that are in uh, the minimum wage category are students, people that are 15, 16 to 24 years of age, uh, then a small group above that. That being said, we've only got a few seconds left. Um, your th- holiday season, is it looking good for you for hospitality? Yeah, I, th- I think it is. I think there's still, you know, we, uh, in a couple of our, like, powerhouse in South Coast, we have uh, larger banquet rooms where we do a lot of uh, large gatherings, holiday parties, or, you know, whatever kind of parties, you know, whether it's retirements or birthday or whatnot. Um, and we've seen quite an uptick on, on bookings. A lot of it is just uh, trying to get back to what uh, people missed over the last couple of years. So, again, we're hopeful that that uh, carries through and we see a good good busy season. Uh, for those who don't know, you know, December is usually the biggest month of the year for our industry, and we've we've lost that the last two years, you know, mm-hmm. amongst other restrictions and lockdowns. But December specifically, is if, if we lose a third December in a row, that's going to be tough. Andre Servastava with us, Powerhouse District Kitchen and Bar, the King George, Southcote 50, the Dickens, and Beside Social. Anish, good luck. We'll stop by and eat one day soon. Take care. Sounds good, Scott. Thank you. Bye. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Let's bring in Dan McTagg, uh, president of Canadians for Affordable Ener- Energy, a former liberal MP, and talk about what is going on. Uh, economic statement coming down. Christia Freeland, uh, rumors flying out. There'll be incentives for clean energy. Does that include clean uh, Canadian liquid natural gas? Also, U.S. diesel inventory is low. Let's ask him why that. Dan's with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. First, let's talk about the economic statement. It's coming uh, coming down just after 4 o'clock, we understand, uh, and we've heard leaked information, incentive for clean energy. Do you think that involves uh, liquid natural gas, Canadian liquid natural gas? Hard to say. Um, these folks haven't really picked up on the idea that uh, the world is short of energy, uh, particularly petroleum products, and it's petroleum products that are in demand, uh, not solar energy, not uh, uh, you know, uh, not windmill uh, produced electricity. We have plenty of that. We have nuclear. We have natural gas backup. Uh, we, of course, have hydroelectric. So the very thing that we need, uh, that the world needs, is the very thing that this government refuses to provide. And I'm not sure if it's 
intellectual arrogance uh, or just hubris, whatever the case may be, um, it's leading to uh, you know an inev- inevitable collision uh, with consumers who can't afford to make ends meet and who, even for those who don't really make the connection between blocking pipelines, regulations, uh, ESG mandates, divestment strategies by banks, insurance companies led by the government, even for those folks, uh, you know, you can't ignore what's happening at the grocery checkout. And uh, that is directly the result of prices of things like diesel uh, and uh, natural gas going through the proverbial roof. And a lot of this is not the result of a disruption. It's not the result of COVID. It's not the result of, you know, uh, Russia, the war in Ukraine. It's the result of Canada refusing to supply what the world desperately needs and now finds itself embarrassingly having to uh, paper over the fact that it has the third largest provable reserves in the world and is not prepared to use them, despite the fact that a growing number of Canadians are getting a little tired of this. Uh, On that note, um, let me come at this from this angle, uh, Dan. Is this federal government changing their tune behind the scenes but putting on a front to keep uh, the extreme environmentalists from blowing a gasket. I remember David Suzuki coming out and speaking out just a few weeks ago against things that were changing. Uh, is is a lot of this a front? Are they really doing it in the back door, or are they really shutting off the tap? No, look, in every cabinet minister's office is a climate commissar, a person who oversees to make sure that everything is done to, uh, to abide by and uh, to uh, give uh, credence to um, the uh, desire of pushing uh, what is obviously unworkably and uh, unreliably green energy. And so uh, I don't think it's a question of playing both sides. I mean, the reality, however, is starting to hit them right in the face. When you start hitting Atlantic Canadians, the hardcore bedrock support of the Liberal Party, and I know, having served 36 years in that party, 18 as a member of Parliament, when you start hitting Newfoundlanders with $2.70 a litre for home heating fuel, for furnace oil, to keep them warm, and there is no other t- alternative, you know you're playing with fire. And it's only a matter of time before uh, this uh, crowd of people around the Prime Minister, uh, who have very little in the way of experience, have never really connected themselves with the angst of the public, is about to get some serious financial blowback. Uh, it'll come in the form of, a, of an election, in which uh, I predict very clearly not only the high prices that we're paying and the reasons for it, I think it's uh, it's it's you know the last days of the Liberal NDP government because it's uh, it's pretty clear Canadians cannot afford any more of this uh, woke nonsense. Uh, diesel wire supplies low, and how is that going to affect supply chain costs? Considering everything comes by truck. Well, diesel, of course, is the fuel that uh, uh, that is the global workhorse. It moves your economy. Diesel is also made with heavy oil. Heavy oil has been blocked. We can't get it from Venezuela. Mexico can't produce anymore. And, well, the Canadian government killed substantial pipelines, not just across Canada, but, of course, their colleagues, their brethren in the Democratic woke party, the Green Party of Biden, decided to kill the Keystone XL pipeline, relying instead incredibly on a reserve. Rather than looking at the massive strategic petroleum reserve the world has, the Americans have just north of the border, they decided to drain their own, and a lot of that was heavy oil. It takes heavy oil to make diesel. We don't have enough of it. And what we do have is blocked by pipeline hijinks, compliments of the green grifters over the years who've been doing everything they can to prevent Canada from getting its product to market. And I'm not, look, I'm not a big fan of the oil companies. I couldn't care less about them. But if anybody has any concerns about maybe the economy making ends meet, they better start to wake up and smarten up. 
because if you're uh, you're at the end of the day you're saying with things like oh I don't care about shortages in diesel, you better start thinking twice because all of your products are moved by diesel, whether that's by rail, whether that's by train, whether that happens to be by plane, uh, or whether it happens to be food. Uh, and I say that because 10 to 15 percent of the fertilizer we have in this country comes from diesel. <laughs> it's called urea. Anybody, any farmer would be able to tell you that. So, look, I think we have a, a, a real disconnect in this country. And uh, when it comes to diesel shortages, we've had a couple of refineries shut down. They've shut down because you have governments on both sides of the border saying, hey, no more internal combustion engines after 2030, 2035. The war on fossil fuels is being waged on the back of ordinary, hardworking people. And it's accomplishing zip when it comes to reduction in uh, emissions. All right, uh, got about 10 seconds left. Gas prices up again coming up? Up four cents a liter tomorrow, up five cents a liter on Saturday. And diesel uh, will go up, uh, will go down a little bit tomorrow, maybe two or three cents, but then up 13 cents a liter on Saturday. There you got it first. Dan McTagg, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP. As always, Dan, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. You too, Scott. Cheers. We can't ignore the impact this is having on our country. It's damaging. It's corrosive, and it's destructive. And I want to be very clear. This is not about me. It's about all of us. It's about what makes America, America. Last night, U.S. President Joe Biden out in front of Americans uh, talking about the future and uh, sticking up for democracy, uh, as he put it. Uh, let's bring in Reggie Cicchini and the reasons behind all of this. Reggie, our Washington correspondent for Global News, he's with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Good afternoon. So why last night? What was the purpose of this? Was it a rallying cry, or is this just all about the midterms? Well, I mean, according to people inside the White House, this was a speech that the president had been wanting to give for several days and then opted to do this um, last night. I think there's a couple of important points here. Number one, this was given um, at a hall space inside of Union Station, which is about a block away from uh, from the U.S. Capitol, obviously a building that became kind of a flashpoint for what can happen when there are um, you know, unwarranted threats against democracy, a.k.a. Uh, January 6th. Uh, but the speech itself, it, 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 it had a strange resonance to it because, well, the threat to democracy is an ongoing issue in this country. It is something that uh, there are people that have concerns about. It is not the number one concern for most Americans. But number two, it also comes days and days after that attack on Paul Pelosi. And the question became, mm. why didn't the president come out immediately and do this? Why did he wait so long this was a speech that likely had an impact on very few people are you surprised that he didn't speak up uh, earlier about the attack on nancy pelosi's husband considering not only her position but the friendship there yeah i mean look we we had statements from the white house and we had statements from the podium uh from the press secretary about what happened but again there have been criticisms, uh, not just on the issue of uh, of democracy and the threat to it, but you know, if we go back to um, last summer when Roe v. Wade was overturned, and it took days uh, for something constructive to be done out, out of the White House, there were concerns that there are simply too many delays between action A and kind of you know comment B, uh, and, and you know for whatever the reason was, the president decided to give this speech last night, and well, it was important. There were important points that this president made, including, um, you know, a flashback to his predecessor and what has kind of, you know, gone on in this country for the last two years. Um, You know, the reasons for whatever the president does, um, they're having an impact on his likability 
And you just have to look at that from the polls. This is a president who is sagging in, um, you know, favorability numbers. And that speech last night didn't speak to the people who he's really needing to bring over. Uh, on that note, is it due to the fact that the number one issue, I believe, for Americans, very similar to it is up here, it's not so much social issues anymore, it's the economy, it's inflation, it's it's grocery prices, all of that sort of thing. Uh, is that is that where he's missing the boat here, is he's not focusing on that? I think it's not just the president that is missing the boat on the uh, on the economic story here. And you're right. This is not a U.S. story. This is not, um, you know, it's a story that's playing out in Canada. But at the end of the day, this is a global story. But the fact that the president and Democrats are kind of looking at threats to democracy and, uh, you know, issues surrounding abortion, well, these are big deals. Uh, you know, they're not big enough when it comes to the electorate as a whole. And the fact that you know, so much time has been uh, has elapsed, whether it's uh, having to do with threats of democracy with the attacks on Nancy Pelosi or the the kind of ignoring of the uh, of the economy. Um, it's given Republicans an edge and ability and opportunity to take control of the messaging, whether it's about Pelosi, whether it's about the economy. And they really have been driving that home to their base, but more importantly, to the independents around this country or the, the people who haven't really made up their mind of who they might want to vote for next week. And that is where this could have been a critical misstep, not just for the president, but for, for Democrats uh, as a whole. Anything on energy? And is the U.S. as energy secure, self-sufficient as it was? Well, I mean, look, it, the, the, the U.S. can do what it needs to do when there is an energy crisis. And we've seen this and we had a note from the White House earlier today, at least when it comes to gas prices, uh, that there will be another uh, strategic release of the reserve uh, with the gas reserves in, in the United States. So the U.S. can be, um, you know, energy independent when it needs to be, but it also is not financially feasible for the U.S. to do that as well. That's why um, you know, imports and exports when it comes to, to energy uh, are important to this country. But again, those aren't conversations that are coming from the White House. Those are conversations that are coming from Republicans and conversations coming from people sitting at kitchen table uh, because pocketbook issues are important to Americans right now. And whether it's the fact that energy prices are going up, gas prices have remained stubbornly high, or inflation rates uh, are having an impact on things like mortgage rates as the Fed continues to raise uh, its base rates, these are issues that the Democrats aren't talking about, and this could potentially be why some of the experts that we've spoken to in the last 24 hours predict not only a potential Republican majority in the House, but also possibly in the Senate as well, solely because Democrats' messaging has not been good enough. What uh, we got about 30 seconds left. What does it mean if both those uh, go to the Republicans? Well, it means the president's agenda is going to uh, be logjammed for the next two years. It is going to provide a reset for how this country has been moving over the last several years. It could potentially mean ongoing investigations like impeachment into the president. But it also is going to give America a, a glimpse into 2024 if they don't like what Republicans do over the next two years, if they find it too extreme. It would give Americans the opportunity to say we need to claw back a bit. Maybe that becomes an advantage for Repub uh, for Democrats rather in 2024. Always fascinating. Reggie Cicchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's find out what's going on in the city of Hamilton. And, well, he's still our mayor. Mayor of the city of Hamilton, Fred Eisenberger, is with us now. Fred, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing well. You know, the weather is just spectacular, and that, uh, that eerie fog at night is... Uh Somewhat comforting, I find. I don't know about you, but I, I kind of like it, but don't want to don't drive in it, though. 
It's, yeah, that's the thing. And I hear this weekend it's going up to like 20 degrees. I mean, that's unbelievable when you think about it. Can we keep this going until January sometime? Yeah. It makes me very happy. Yes, if we move to Florida, I think, yes, we could. Uh, All right, so when when is your last day, Mayor Fred? Uh, The official last day is uh, the 14th. And then on the 15th, the official duties of the next mayor will begin. And then the inauguration for the... uh, New mayor and council will be on the 16th, the evening of the 16th. So we're uh, we're a week and a half away from the end of the end, but uh, we're getting closer to the end for sure. So your thought your thought on the results, and has Andrea asked for any advice yet? Uh, plenty. Um, you know, you will know that uh, that I certainly uh, was supportive of Andrea to become the uh, the next mayor, and that uh, that is no secret. And certainly, I've been in uh, you know steady communications with her. And since then, since the election, uh, we've sat down on several occasions and plan on doing it again tomorrow just to update on uh, the issues of the day, uh, the you know, things that are uh, flashpoints, uh, you know, the makeup of the council, the things that they, she has to do in terms of appointments and other uh, issues that are going to come up for uh, setting up this next council for all of its boards and commissions and standing committees. So there's a lot to do, and uh, I'm sure she's funneling in a lot of new information, and uh, I'm there to help whatever way I can. That's great to hear. It really is comforting to hear that. Uh, what's that experience like for you? Well, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, you have some good days and some bad days. I mean, I know that I'm, I'm leaving behind, uh, you know, a, a, a city that's in, in great shape, as, as Andrea's uh, slogan on her sign said, uh, you know, the, the, the new mayor for, the, for a thriving city. The city is absolutely thriving. Uh, we have lots of, uh, you know, new commercial developments happening, lots of new housing, more housing being built right now than ever before in the last uh, 50 years. Uh, we have good uh, a good AAA credit rating. Actually, that was a uh, you know piece yeah. of good news that steadily increased our, our credit rating, which is good news in an inflationary time. That reduces the borrowing rate that the city might have to employ, uh, and that is good news. And, and AAA credit rating from Standard and Poor's means that we are making the kind of key strategic investments to make our community sustainable going forward. And so uh, that's that's good news in terms of the status of the over, overall economic standing of our city. So uh, the city's in good shape. It's thriving. It's uh, It's got lots of opportunity written all over it. Yes, we have our warts, and, and certainly, you know, the, 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 the homelessness and some of the poverty issues are of continuing concern. And certainly will uh, be part of the next council's mandate as well. What we currently, we spend about $120 million per year on housing and housing supports for those that are having difficulty in affording rents. Uh, we provide supports for that. We obviously provide our affordable housing stock at subsidized rates. So uh, a lot is being done to help in that situation, but uh, but more needs to be done sure for sure. And a lot of that really relies on federal and provincial contributions that are going to make the difference in terms of how that uh, space is going to evolve. So uh, the city overall is doing great. Uh, we have a new council. Uh, the new council have lots to build on. And uh, and Andrea, as mayor, I think, will uh, is certainly of a mind to kind of work from where we are today to advance, uh, you know, additional issues on our city. Where do you see the next five years? Obviously, LRT will be in full construction mode downtown at that point. But but where do you see this growth in the next five years? Well, I mean, we're we're going to see uh, significant growth along the LRT corridor. I mean, we we've already had uh, major developments downtown 
in, yeah. in advance of, in anticipation of the LRT. And we're going to see more of that, uh, higher density, not, not sky towers, you know, along, along Queenston Road and, and Main Street and King Street. Uh, we're going to see higher density developments. We're already seeing, you know, higher density developments in, uh, in proposed for Eastgate Square, which is the end of the line for LRT. And uh, all the way along the route, we're going to see a renewal and uh, and uh, some of that commercial commercial space that's uh, old and tired will uh, certainly get renewed as well and and repurposed. Uh, but then we we're also looking at uh, you know housing developments in every part of our city. I mean, you don't have to drive too far and know that uh, you know the Roxborough development in here in East End is a massive uh, uh, redevelopment of a, an area that used to have a hundred. Uh, geared to income units is now going to have about 1,200 uh, different layers of affordability units, including market uh, built into it. So that's happening right now. And of course, don't want to forget about our waterfront development that is uh, ready for shovels in the ground sometime next year uh, to start building some of those uh, so residential units, some 1,200 residential units right on Pier 8. Uh, right in front of the uh, the recreational investments that we've already made all the way along piers 5, 6, and 7, and 8. So lots of opportunity for a new development. But, you know, I, I tell you what's more important. What's more important is the job creation. And we're seeing an awful lot of new businesses coming to Hamilton, setting up. Uh, you know, Amazon is just one example, but uh, mm. we've got... Uh, um, uh, the uh, the the new new uh, area around the airport that's attracting a lot of new uh, 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 industrial opportunity. We have the waterfront lands, uh, the Stelco lands that have been sold now recently to a company called Slade that are looking to repurpose those lands into new uh, um, advanced manufacturing, which is going to create jobs. And really, it's uh, it's making sure that all of those opportunities are realized, so that for the folks that want to live here and want to come here and want to be here that there are job opportunities for them when they do. Uh, I remember when I first got here many, many uh, years, many, many years ago, uh, Hamilton wasn't doing so well, and we were all waiting for this. We were all waiting for, uh, you know, the, the city to turn the corner and such. And and I, I remember at that point, you know, everything around us seemed to be growing. Housing prices starting to go up. Now we're seeing, uh, obviously, tremendous success in Hamilton. You're talking about the AAA credit rating and such. What about gentrification? How do we balance this Mayor Fred, when we've got all these yeah. people interested in coming in, and the city was sort of flat, stagnant for so long, those that might be left behind. How, how do you deal with with gentrification here? Yeah, and and, and it must be dealt dealt with, uh, you know. And and you know, it, it, I, I hate to pass the buck on this, but a lot of it has to do with social service uh, uh, benefits that are you know substandard. I would say that uh, aren't giving people enough to have a decent quality of life, especially in the face of rising costs. So. I think the provincial government has to have a hard look at uh, what what uh, a sensible, reasonable uh, uh, social service rate is now, uh, given the given the increase in housing prices. Uh, it has to keep pace, or else we're going to have people, more people, on the street. We can't have that, and so that's one one element of it. The uh, the other is uh, you know a national affordable housing plan. Now I know the federal government has made some good steps in terms of providing subsidized daycare and, uh, you know, pharma, pharma care or, or help and assistance for seniors and others in, in terms of uh, prescription drug costs. And that's uh, certainly been reducing the overall cost. But the price of housing 
has eclipsed all of those uh, those issues. And so mm. there has to be a look at uh, what what the provincial government will provide in terms of social services uh, supports and what the uh, the federal government might provide in terms of assistance for people to have a decent standard of living. I'm a I'm a huge believer that that we need a a form of guaranteed income. Uh, that actually happened through COVID, yeah. where people were given substantial you know amounts of money to maintain their bills and pay their bills and pay their rent and get the quality food that they need. If we fail to provide for those that uh, are unemployed or uh, underemployed or unemployable, uh, and we uh, we keep them on the margins, we are going to continue to have strife in our community. So that's an issue that has to be dealt with. That's predominantly a federal and provincial issue. In terms of housing market, uh, that, that market runs on its own. I think the government probably waited a little too long to institute higher interest rates to put a break on the the whole inflation that's happened in the housing market. Mm. And now we're facing you know a bit of a decline in terms of pricing, but certainly not significant enough to uh, to, to help those that are having difficulty getting into the uh, housing market to get into the housing market. So there's. There's, there's some serious um, you know, national housing strategy that, that has to be deployed. I think a serious look at guaranteed income, I think, is going to be necessary. And certainly having the province have a look at what, uh, what reasonable social service uh, rates should be, uh, I think are, are all going to be factors to ensure that people that are living here can afford to do so. Fred Eisenberger with us, Mayor for the City of Hamilton, for a couple of more days. Anyway, uh, Mayor Fred, we will chat again and enjoy the last few days. I am uh, always available, Scott, but I'll, uh, I'll, uh, I'll savor the last few days and, and really compliment uh, all the great people that I've been able to work with. Whatever success I talk about, it's because we've had a great team of people uh, you know, putting their shoulder to the wheel make it happen. So it's not all about me, it's all about them. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Even the federal uh, politicians are weighing in on Ontario Premier Doug Ford and his use of the notwithstanding clause legislation to keep uh, education workers from striking uh, on Friday, tomorrow. Uh, it seems odd to me that um, leaders are, are talking about <laughs> defending each other's rights and looking after the rights of workers and such. All while a six-week uh, inquiry is going on into... Uh, the Freedom Convoy and the use of the Emergencies Act. Freedom Convoy also fighting for individual rights and freedoms. <laughs> you know, the extreme left and the extreme right are a lot closer than they actually think. They're all fighting for freedom. Uh, why don't we all just come together and, and try to solve some of these problems? Let's bring in Daniel Perry, consultant, Summa Strategies. He's with us now. Daniel, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am. I'm, I hope you're also doing well, Scott. So, so oh, is there any irony or hypocrisy here, Daniel, where, you know, where we've got one level of government talking about the other one using the notwithstanding clause and, and, and Trump stamping on rights, and then we have an inquiry going on for the use of the Emergencies Act, which many thought was stomping on people's rights. It seems we're coming at it from both extremes here. Yeah, we really are. Uh, in government, there's a saying that says, never let a good crisis go to waste. And this is one that's happening. Mm. Uh, as the feds are currently going through that inquiry about using the Emergencies Act, they see a nice scapegoat here in Ontario with Doug Ford stepping on a rake, smacking him straight in the face. 
So instead of talking about the egg that's on the federal government's face, they're looking at Doug Ford and pointing at him and trying to make him to be the clown that he sometimes is. Is Are Canadians seeing this, or does it depend on what team you're on? I think Canadians are seeing this. I think Ontario parents are especially seeing it right now. If uh, COVID's taught us anything, uh, staying at home with your child to teach them school while you're trying to work is definitely not ideal. So I think there's a lot more skin in the game provincially than there is federally, because to be frank, if you didn't live in Ottawa, the Freedom Convoy didn't really impact your life too, too much. So uh, getting back to the uh, premier and the notwithstanding clause, using that, obviously this is going to come to a head tomorrow when kids Mm -hmm. are not in school or depending upon the situation with the board and such. How do you think this is going to, what are we going to be talking about in a couple of weeks from now? Where is all this going to be, do you think? I think it really depends what happens in the next 24 hours. Uh, if the Ford government is successful in not using the notwithstanding clause and teachers and their support staff are forced back into schools and not being able to strike, I think we're going to have a quick conversation about this. And I think teachers and uh, those around them and the support staff are going to be mad. They're going to be angry, but I think that's going to go away after some time, like every news story does. But if the students aren't in the classrooms tomorrow, I think that's going to be a longer term headache for the government. And that's why they're looking to be so forceful in this. It's because they're worried about the political blow that it will take to their government if kids aren't in the classroom. So are you surprised considering where we were prior to the global pandemic and and there was, you know, negotiations going on then? And obviously these seem to take a pretty militant negative turn. We've experienced this for many, 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 many years. Are you surprised that we're back at it again where we are now coming out of this pandemic? Are you surprised that we haven't changed the tone in any way? Uh, I'm surprised at how forceful the tone has been. I I think that what the Ford government is doing is a little bit mind-blowing and overkill. Um, With that said, though, teachers striking again? Hey, that's a normal day in Ontario. Uh, If you've been following Ontario politics for a number of times, you know that there's always tension between the government and the school system. So I think we're seeing a return to normal in that sense, because instead of talking about COVID and the lack of protection that uh, our school system is facing. We're now talking about better supporting it and providing for those that are teaching the next generation. How long can we go without changing this in some way? Because I really get the feeling that Ontario parents, I mean, I'm old enough to remember going through this as a student now with my mm-hmm. kids mm-hmm. as well. Uh, how long, how much patience do you think Ontario parents have for doing this exercise every other year or however long it is for the last 40 or 50 years while we're doing nothing for healthcare? Uh, I think there's very little patience for it. I don't think if you have to spend the night wondering if your kid will be in school, if you have to take the day off the next day to be with them to try to teach them online or just not have them taught at all, that's not really a position that you want to be in. So uh, I think something has to be done. I think one side has to give. And they're both very strong-minded sides in terms of the government and the union. They don't get along very well. So I think it could be a, it could be a long battle to see any, any side kind of concede and try to meet in the middle. Daniel Perry with us, consultant Summa Strategies. Daniel, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Obviously, the big um, the big uh, news of the day is that it is uh, official that uh, mediation between the government and the union has, in fact, broken off. Um, both sides now planting uh, their heels. 
the unions uh, would not take the right to strike off the table for this Friday. They wanted to go out this Friday if things didn't go the way they wanted them to. The government then introduces uh, legislation fast-tracking a bill to prevent them from going on strike on Friday. Uh, and <laughs> here we are. Uh, you have to wonder if we would have got there anyway, uh, s- seemingly, because they, they just seem so far apart when uh, it comes to this sort of thing. So anyway, to, to basically uh, bring you up to date on uh, where we are, the mediation has broken off between the two. And by the way, we're trying to get a hold of a professor right now to talk a little bit more about the notwithstanding clause and the use of it and how we got to where we are. Is this all legal? How does this move forward? Uh, do they show up tomorrow? If they don't show up, are they then violating a law of some sort? So we're trying to get those uh, questions answered for you. Uh, and as far as the clarity on Friday, other than what the news uh, is offering you, and that is a pretty fluid situation, um, it, it certainly looks like the kids are out to uh, out tomorrow as a result. Uh, many Again, it depends on your, your school board, but uh, some are not going to move forward if the uh, support workers are out. Some are going to try. Uh, and again, we've also got OPSU. Uh, they announced that their 800, sorry, 8,000, uh, education workers and education assistants, early childhood educators will also, uh, be out as a result. So, uh, that's where we are at this point. What does it all mean? Uh, let's bring in Judy Fudge, professor, labor studies, McMaster University, and with us now. Judy, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thank you very much. I hope you are too. So help us all try to understand this. Uh, obviously, negotiation going on. Obviously, the right to strike is a big part of that negotiation. As we, as the, the these two sides in this discussion sort of came to a head, uh, a Friday uh, strike vote was put forward. You get the five day notice for that. Um, Ontario government didn't like that. Said take it off the table, or uh, we're going to uh, legislate all of this and and push it through. And of course, we are where we are. Let's talk about the. Leg- Legalities of this. Um, before we, we we talk about how unusual it is, is it legal? How does it work? Well, the law itself, Bill Twenty Eight. If it weren't for the notwithstanding clause being invoked the way it has been in the legislation, it would clearly be a violation of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, both the collective bargaining right and the right to strike. So that's pretty clear. It might also violate other rights, some of the equality rights, and it could even violate natural justice in Section 7. However, the government, knowing that this law would violate the Charter, has proactively shielded itself against any form of legal review. And I'm talking any form of legal review. And how does that happen? It's used its majority Mm -hmm. to invoke the notwithstanding clause, which governments are able to do so if they make it clear and they put it in legislation. And that notwithstanding clause operates for five years to protect the government from any constitutional challenge that could be brought. So in addition to doing that, however, the government has included a whole range of provisions that says it's not liable to any action, it's not accountable to the Labor Relations Board, 
it's not accountable to the Human Rights Commission that any orders or decisions that are outstanding from the past will not take effect. So it's quite extraordinary. So um, obviously it's there. Why is it there? What should it or would it be used for? The notwithstanding clause, why it's there? It's so that the government isn't accountable to anyone until it goes to voters in four years' time. Of course, it never said that this was part of its platform. So for four years, it's completely unaccountable in terms of how it's behaving, knowing that it is violating basic fundamental freedoms. So why do we have it? And what's the reason? What would be another reason where this would be an adequate uh, uh, way to handle this? Why, why do we have the notwithstanding clause? Yes. Well, and when and okay. when sh- and when should it be used? When would okay, it be so, used? OK, that's a really good question. So in Quebec, Premier Legault has decided that in Quebec, People aren't allowed to wear religious symbols right. when they're working in the public sector. So turbans, crosses, abbots, hurans, none of that. So he's decided that the notion of secularism is more important, knowing yeah. that some religious groups can't actually slip it under their shirt. Right. So, again, I guess my question is, Judy, is from what you're saying, there's no reason to have this law. It should not be on the books. So when 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 would we use it? When is it appropriate? I'm not saying that. I'm saying that Section 33 is a constitutional override. So you might say, oh, my goodness, there's a state of war. This is a total state of war. Putin is going to bomb us. So we're going to suspend civil liberties for two weeks that yes i could see that and that would probably pass most of us agreement so we could understand we could see if there was a horrible 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 storm right where the government could say this is an emergency we are let going me ask to you, take over the airwaves. Let me ask We're you this, going Judy. To force you to say that okay. this is an emergency. So let me ask you yeah, this, Judy. I think that would be good. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this, Judy. It could it have been used instead of the Emergencies Act with the Freedom Convoy? Because this is all about no, rights. Could it? it no? couldn't. No, it couldn't. This is about overriding the Charter of Rights, not about overriding determining whether you have policing forces or not. So they're completely different questions. So it's too bad things are getting muddy, but this has nothing to do with the Charter. If the government of Ontario had decided that people shouldn't be allowed to talk about the convoy and then decided to override the charter, that would be the same thing. Right. So if they said, you can't talk about that, right. we're going to override the Constitution, that would be the same thing. The thing about the Emergencies Act, that's irrelevant. Red herring. 
Uh, it's sort it's sort of odd though because it's both about human rights, each one defending human rights in some form. I think I think well, you know, we have all sorts of things around yeah. defending human rights. And, We're out of time, Judy. Fact, Unfortunately, think, let's continue. Go ahead, and then we gotta th- we gotta run. I think that you're mis you're confusing things. It's too bad. Uh, the Emergencies Act is overcoming a range of different things, and there's a process that they're being held accountable to. What's different about Bill 28 is the government has ensured that it's not accountable to anyone for four years until we vote. That's profoundly different and profoundly unacceptable. In I got you there, Judy, but we got to cut you off because we're plumb out of time. Judy Fudge, Professor, Labor Studies, McMaster University. All right, Christia Freeland, the Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Finance, presented the 2022 Fall Economic Statement in the House of Commons earlier this afternoon to talk about what he thinks about it. Eric Cam is with us, Professor of Economics for Toronto Metropolitan University and with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. I hope you are, too. So far, so good. Uh, your thoughts on the economic statement. Any surprises there for you? No, there was no surprises at all. In fact, I'm not sure it was a statement as much as it was a modified state of the union. Here's where we are. Here are the facts that interest rates are going up. We are not finished watching them go up. We are not behind the inflation idea yet. We are still grossly behind the eight ball. Prices are going to go up. All prices in the economy are going to go up. And rates of interest are just one of them. And I thought in terms of what are we going to do about it, you actually heard nothing. And I think that's what disappoints me the most from the finance minister is I, I again, from the Liberal government, heard nothing in terms of prescription, nothing in terms of what are we going to do. It was another fancy way of saying we're going to stay the course and we're going to ride this out. Well, why did they have to have a press conference or a budget to announce that? Because in terms of what they did for people... Um, like they doubled up on the GST rebate, uh, things like that. These are these are inconsequential. These are absolutely inconsequential to the fact that prices are rising. They're spiraling at a rate that we haven't seen in almost 40 years. So, you know, I, I, I don't want to punt on the question, but what did I see? I saw nothing, Scott. Um, it, it seemed that there's more talk about where we are as opposed to where we're going. At one point, Chrissy Freeland compared the economy to uh, the pandemic, to COVID-19, saying we couldn't control, we couldn't avoid uh, this global pandemic. We're not going to avoid uh, where the economy is going. Is that accurate? That's partially accurate. She's kind of got a grain of truth in there, meaning they didn't have a clue how to handle the economy during the pandemic, and so now they're willing to accept the consequences. The reality is, here's a staggering number for you, Scott. Do you know that 80% of all of the money printed in the history of this country occurred during the pandemic? Mm. That is just, it's an unsustainable statistic. So then you ask your, you go across the street and you say to your Bank of Canada, okay, we apologize that we increased the money supply to to that type of um, a, a magnitude. Could you please now ensure that inflation doesn't go crazy. Well, you may think the Bank of Canada is doing a bad job, but they're just doing everything they can. They've been they've been handed uh, an absolute horrible pile, and they've said, now, how are we going to fight this? Well, a Bank of Canada can only do two things. It can play with the money supply or play with the interest rates, and that's exactly what you're seeing. 
they're saying we've got to raise interest rates higher and higher. Now, they've now put the, the housing market is, of course, completely recessed. In fact, it's the bottom has fallen out. Um, and I don't like that only because that's a great harbinger of what's going to happen next, which means if the housing market collapses, here comes a recession. So, you know, what? I, I kind of resent. Uh, I always tell people the truth. I resent the finance minister saying, well, we couldn't help it then. And so we couldn't help it now. No, the truth is you didn't help it then. And so you can't help it now. That's more the truth, Scott. Hmm. Uh, also talking about investing in Canadian clean energy industries. Do you think that includes Canadian liquid natural gas? Uh, no, I think that this country has an amazing ability to fumble its natural resources and its comparative advantage in terms of resources, gas, natural gas, oil. We have a, we have a, a created birthright of a comparative advantage and we do nothing with it. We should be selling our oil and our gas to everybody, but for some reason we dropped the ball and we are buying it. And by the way, I heard about that today and I, I did some reading about how Freeland was so proud of their, you know, invest resources in Canada, invest resources in Canada. But if you strip it away, it's just back to her zero net emission plan and her go green plan. Now, I have children. I might even have grandchildren someday. Oh. I don't know. Anyway, but if I do, I'm going to want the world to be green and I'm going to want the world to be healthy. But this is not the right time. This is not the time for policies to reduce emissions. And this is not the time to be slaving over the environment. This is the time to be increasing people's disposable income so people can feed their kids and not lose their houses. I don't like that they, they play this act of, well, as long as we're going to stay on this green plan, we feel good about ourselves. There's nothing good about it, Scott. Right now, people are going to lose their homes, and that's got to be more important than a green environment. Can we create more green jobs? I mean, I read a thing uh, a couple of weeks ago where uh, 75% of the solar uh, solar panel industry is controlled by China. So I'm not sure these jobs are here. Maybe the the high-end technology jobs, but certainly not the manufacturing aspect of this. So how how many jobs can we create considering it's Canada? Um, I, listen, obviously I can't give you a, a number because I would be pulling it out of a hat and I would never do that. But the answer is, you know, you can create growth in an industry when there is the political and economic will to create growth. But I would again argue at what cost? I mean, if you're going to put all of your eggs into the environmental basket, what about the other industries? What about the other people that work in labor and have specific job training that isn't associated with the green environment and environmental protections. I mean, don't get me wrong again. I don't want people to think, oh, Eric doesn't care about the environment or jobs in the environment. He does. But, I, you know, I'm not a bank. I don't care about shareholders. I, I care about people who own homes and have to feed their children. We need some economic growth. We have to get spending under control. We've got to get inflation under control, give people back some disposable income. I saw a statistic that next year, People are going to be $3,000 a year on average poorer for a family making $70,000. They're going to be $3,000 poorer. Do you think that family is concerned about the green movement or the zero emissions movement, Scott? They want to feed their children. And somehow our government doesn't seem to want to focus in on that right now. Eric Cam, Professor Economics, Professor of Economics, Toronto Metropolitan University. As always, Eric, thanks so much for the time. Be well. It's an honor. You too. Stay healthy. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. It's official. Uh, the controversial bill that will outlaw a proposed strike and impose a contract on education w- uh, workers has been passed by the Ford government. Therefore, uh, tomorrow, if there is a strike, and by all intention, the QPE people have said that there is, uh, that will be deemed illegal. The uh, bill has passed uh, in the legislature, and I guess that's obvious simply because uh, they had a majority. All right, let's move on. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. How are you? I'm doing very well. Your thought on where we are, thoughts on where we are now, uh, that I'm not sure we wouldn't end up, have ended up here anyway, whether there was legislation or not, because they seem to be quite far apart either way. Uh, certainly, there was no deal on the table to save us, so you have to think we would have got here anyway. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on where we are? And uh, my goodness, after 50 years, the tradition continues, and we've got another education uh, uh, disruption on our hands. Yeah, and, and, you know, you and I have talked about it all week that this is entirely predictable and entirely in line with historic precedent that no matter who the government is, they have problems when it comes to negotiating with education unions, whether it's the teachers or it's the support workers. And, Scott, I, I I don't know how you resolve this because it seems the only resolution because the teachers, because the education unions are so powerful, in the past, the only resolutions have been seemingly pay lots and lots and lots and lots more taxpayers' money. And that has led us to, well, I would I would suggest, you know, I was taught, now, I my history may be off on this, because I'm going way back, in grade probably nine history, my vague recollection is we were taught about a king named Ethelred the Unready. Ever heard of him? No. All right. I was look him up. I, and I'm this is off the top of my head. This is remembering something from grade nine history. And the idea was he was never ready to defend his kingdom. And when he was attacked, he paid off the attackers with whatever they wanted. Well, what right. did they do then? Well, they realized, well, he's just going to buy us off. So they just kept attacking him every time, knowing that sure. he was never going to fight back. I kind of get that same feeling here that if you add the, all the money and the big settlements that have led that have happened in the past have only led to belief that, well, we're going to get another big settlement and it's always happened. So what are your thoughts? You know, what are your, what are your thoughts on those that say this is way over the top? It's draconian. Uh, it's way, it's nuclear. It's way too big a hammer. Oddly enough, we were having the same discussion about the emergencies act. Although I just talked to a prof from uh, McMaster who kind of scolded me for drawing a comparison between the two. I'm sure she was doing it from a legal perspective. I'm doing it from a human rights perspective because it seems both, <laughs> both the, uh, the left and the right, whether it's fighting for, uh, their freedom or fighting for the right to strike, uh, they're all fighting for rights just from different ends of the political spectrum. Well, I, look, I don't love bringing this in here. I don't. And I think it's really h- kind of hilarious, not that it's being used, but in the sense that if you're on the right, you believe that this was fine, but the Emergencies Act was probably an overreach. And if you're yeah. on the left, you probably yes. believe the Emergencies Act was fine, but this is an overreach. Which only does anybody goes else? Side. Does anybody else see that point? It just seems that there's there isn't anybody in the middle. There's just those on the either end that are going, "No, mine's right, yours is wrong. No, mine's well, right, yours is it, wrong." It, like, does nobody see the irony here? 
it only goes to show that this is all politicized as opposed to like, do we really want to get to the bottom of what the real answer is and what the right thing is here? Or is it entirely just which flag you carry? And I think it's the latter. Unfortunately, I believe you're right. At the end of the day, what do you think is going to be happening next week? Um, Because as time goes by, I'm not sure the union's uh, message will be hammered home any more than it already has been to this point. Now what sets in is parents' real frustration as this extends and continues. Yes, and so typically... And, you know, people can correct me if they think I'm wrong on this, but I don't think I am. Typically, the way this has worked is generally the pressure seems to mount far more on the government than on the teachers unions to come up with a settlement. And so, you know, if, if again, if history repeats, that will probably be where things are, that eventually the government will feel the need to give in a little bit more here. And that'll be what happens now. You know, someone could point me to an example where that didn't, but usually it seems that for whatever reason, it's the government that feels the most weight here or the most pressure. Uh, we'll see. We'll see where that goes. We'll see how long this goes. I, I truly can't believe that this is going to be a hugely long one because I can't believe anybody in these this day and age, especially with a recession coming, yeah. is wanting to be out of work. You know who I'm really... I, I am upset for kids, for students... Uh, you know, there was the, the the public board, I think, put out something earlier in the week that says if there's a strike, um, we're going to see a- athletics and stuff put aside again. You know, that yeah. I went yep. to school, not for school, very honestly, in high school. I went for the extracurriculars. Same this here. Would, Same this would have killed me if yep. all yep. of my high school years, whether it's COVID or strikes or whatever, every time we just get started, they tell us, oh, your extracurriculars are off again. Yep. There would have been no reason for me to go. Honestly, that's how I would have felt. Yeah, and same with my kids losing um, extracurriculars, whether it's the musical it's of the terrible. year or whether yep. it's the sports, what have you. And I know, and, and it's just gotten back in. All right, Scott Radley Show. Middle. By the way, yeah. I got to tell you, I just looked it up. Ethel read the unready, 966 to 1016. Look him up. I was right. You can learn something today, Scott. <laughs> uh, and now you know the rest of the story. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we appreciate it. And thanks to the two Wills and Diana and Dave for helping out. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Hey, Scott, it's Jim. Just wanted to call in, let you know that it's not all bad. Come on. Everything's up. Everything's down. And prices, you know, it's pleasantly up for once. That temperature, it's so nice outside. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.